You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, this week, librettist Lila Palmer and stage director Chloe Treat go inside the huddle to talk about the world premiere of a secular opera about a biblical event, The Annunciation. Holy Ground, with music by Damien Jeter, just opened at Glimmerglass Festival and couldn't have come at a better time because, you know, it's about a woman consenting to give birth. Plus, in the two-minute drill... Angela Gheorghiu warns, if you do not study in Romania, you better be careful. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And without further ado, Oliver Camacho, how are you doing? So in the absence of Ashley and George, I'm the one bringing all the sports news today. And I was just mentioning to you guys before we started recording about this uh, New York Times daily podcast, which I listen to every day, uh, the story last week that... The titular daily. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Deshaun Watson, a uh, quarterback, uh, formerly of the Houston Texans, who just signed with the, I want to say the Cleveland Browns. Uh he has a guaranteed contract for $230 million, and he was just suspended a minute ago uh, for six games because of alleged sexual misconduct. Uh, apparently, our friend Mr. Watson really enjoys getting a massage, and he will go to great lengths to find a new therapist each time because nobody ever wants to work with him twice. Oh, uh, no. Because if you work with him, you can expect to have to deal with his Watson. Mm. Mm. He, he likes to flash his Watson around. He likes to, like, let oh it my po- poke above the towel. And he wow, apparently uh, he guides that's... the hand towards the towards the Watson. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> a suspension of six games. What a what what groundbreaking consequences from the NFL over here. God, I mean, that's yeah. very on brand for the NFL. Maybe as I'm I'm sure this will blow up a little bit more. This story just kind of dropped fairly recently, I think. And so uh, uh, hopefully there will be better consequences like than that, like uh, maybe kicking him out entirely forever. That seems like a good idea. Matt. What is some better news in the sports world for me? The, here's some happy news. Top Russian tennis player Daria Kasatkina has announced that she is in a relationship with a woman. Oh. Figure skater Natalia Zabiako. Uh, and she. this came up uh, while she was speaking against the situation in Russia. Uh, and and they are noted homophobic country, Russia. <laughs> yes. Uh, no warmongers homophobes all just all all the good stuff so we can congratulate her on and her relationship on, on her love relationship on love 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 wins yeah absolutely and i would like to uh give we've got some bad news some some good news here's some extremely strange news uh there is apparently a rumor going around that the jacksonville jaguars might take over soldier field if um if the bears move out to the suburbs and uh that's the weirdest thing i've heard all week would they take it over just for practice or no like like permanently they become the chicago jaguars which is Against the, Arli- against the Arlington Heights Bears. <laughs> <laughs> talk about hyper-local. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Over the weekend, friend of the show, Lydia Yankovskaya, oversaw the uh, opening of a double bill at Glimmerglass Opera. Uh, Jerry Dye and uh, Kamala Sankaram's Taking Up Serpents, which actually uh, played at Chicago Opera Theater, and a world premiere music by Damien Jeter and libretto by Lila Palmer. 
uh, an opera called Holy Ground, which I knew absolutely nothing about before going into this interview with with Lila and the stage director, Chloe Treat. Uh, it is about the Annunciation, and get this, it's a comedy. So we're going to hear a little bit of music uh, from this opera. Um, this is baritone Jonathan Pierce Rhodes and pianist Kirill Kuzmin before we start this conversation with Lyle Palmer and Chloe Treat. from Damien Jeter and Lila Palmer's brand new opera, Holy Ground, which opened last week at Glimmerglass Festival. My guests today are Lila Palmer and the stage director, Chloe Treat. Welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you so much Thanks for having for us. Having us. <laughs> oh, I already told I already did what I said I wasn't gonna do. So I first want the audience to hear Lila, welcome to Opera Box Score. <laughs> Thank you so much. Like, it's a pleasure to be here. You are the librettist and Chloe Treat, the stage director. Hi, I'm Chloe. I'm not British. Okay. Lila is. Good, that's... So that's how you'll be able to tell which one of us is which. So um, I'm in Chicago and I haven't obviously seen this. And uh, it sounds like so much fun. It's on a double bill with Taking Up Serpents, which we actually had at Chicago Opera Theatre. Uh, so I sort of get the flavor of what's happening here, but obviously I haven't heard this opera. I don't know how related these two pieces are, but just looking at, you know, the description of this piece, um, I guess I should let you guys describe it. But to me, it feels like a sacred, um, sacred events that happen that we read about, like, you know, in scripture that are turned into a comic opera. <laughs> Is that kind of a fair description? <laughs> That is really a fair description. Um, the way I kind of ended up describing it to people is that it's like a feminist mashup of Good Omens and Life of Brian. Um, <laughs> but <With> singing. <laughs> you were singing on the topic of the Annunciation. Um, and like all good opera comedies, there is chiaroscuro, there is light and shade. So there are serious moments along with the comedy um, and they're kind of held in this glorious, hopefully, tension. Well, what I've always, <laughs> what I've always said about comic operas is the best ones, like Marriage of Figaro, they really touch you because, like, you've sort of shaken up the heart by laughing, and so you're more open to the more kind of like, you know, painful moments, you know, because you're. I don't know something about laughter. Uh, just it's like stretching. It's like stretching your emotions a little bit, you know. That's such a lovely way of describing it. Yes. And that is exactly the goal of the laughter in this piece completely. Okay. So maybe we should, for those who, you know, are not Christians, what is the Annunciation and uh, what is this opera really about? Sure. Um, well, the, the Christian Annunciation is basically this idea um, that obviously there was an idea in the Judaic tradition that there would, a Messiah would come. Um, and in the Christian, Christians believe, obviously, that, um, that the Messiah did come and was born of a virgin, um, and he was espoused to a Jewish guy from the line of David um, called Joseph, and that she found out um, that this was her destiny by the visitation of an angel, and an angel originally called Gabriel came to her and said, would you do you want to be the mother of the Messiah? And Mary said, yes, I would like to be the mother of the Messiah. And lo, it was so. Um, so the, the jumping off point of this piece is actually that 489 Messiah suitable women have been approached by the angel Gabriel. Is this, in, is this like, in scripture? Do we have 489? <laughs> no. <laughs> Only, this is Lila's This is scripture. my license. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say that 
well, I'll, let me finish the thought. The thought, the finishing the thought is that, um, sorry, that we got to 489 women saying no. And the genesis of this piece is, is that finally Gabriel gets fired because he's doing a rubbish job because <laughs> all of these other women have been like, Nami, that sounds like a rubbish deal. Um, <laughs> and finally they bring on this rookie angel. They promote him to be an archangel for the job. And just after he's been promoted, they find him a final Messiah suitable woman. And they're like, you're up. It's your job to convince this woman to become hmm. the mother of Messiah. So, so there, there, is the, there is the idea of consent here, though. I never realized that um, Mary had a decision to make. I just thought, it's like, okay, I guess this is happening. She did, and that's actually in the Bible. That's in the original text. So I haven't added that choice moment. I actually just used the choice moment that was there to kind of expand outwards. But in, um, I'm not a Catholic, but in Catholic theology, that moment of yes is called Mary's fiat. Mm. Um, it literally means Mary's assent. You know, we'll talk about this more later, I suspect, but I also, I, I grew up, you know, a bad Christian, a lax Christian, um, and was also not aware of this crucial choice that happened. And it seems like, especially in this, political moment that we're living through, the idea that kind of baked into this Christian theology is the importance of a woman who wants to be a mother um, has been a really compelling jumping off point this summer. Hmm. Well, we'll, yeah, we will talk about that <laughs> shortly. Uh, but Chloe, um, have I mean, I, we haven't talked much about your biography, but, um, you know, it's a new show and it's a comedy. And I feel like a lot of modern opera, it's just like very serious stuff. And I haven't seen that many comedies being written lately. Um, what is your experience of doing that? And I know that a lot has to do with the performer's ability uh, to understand timing. And I know it's in music, so things are already timed out or already. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, directing comedy, I feel like, is somehow more challenging than directing, you know, Tosca. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, so first of all, it's been such a joy um, and I not to belittle my own work, but partially it's just very funny on the page. I, I think it's you're really screwed as a director if you get something <laughs> that sucks. Um, and these uh, this show does not. And I think in particular, the, the comedic scenes really shine. Um, Thanks, mate. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, we have an incredible cast of young artists who are playing the uh, the the comedic scenes end up being the other archangels. So there's Terubial and then there are four other archangels. Help me, um, Gabriel, G Gabriel, Raphael, Azrael, Azrael and who am I forgetting? Michael. Michael. Yeah, they're Michael. like a Ferrari test team of young artists is what they are. <laughs> they are the best. And so, um, so when you have good work and then talented people for me it's specificity and of course you want that in anything that you're working on but I think especially with comedy the timing is really in the minutiae it's about the very specific mechanisms of the body and of timing and of you know it's a stop and look not a look and stop it's nitty-gritty teeny tiny scene work um and uh we got to, we had the time to do that here and we had the people who were able to do it. Um, so that was such a joy. I will say that the beautiful thing about this show is that it is a comedic framework for then I think a very, I don't wanna say serious, but like tender and emotional and earnest sub story or, or counter story. So you really get to, you get to have both with this show. Um, but I think we talked a lot about the joy of this piece, right? As yeah. well, because, you know, I certainly, and I think we've talked about this as, as women in the industry, like I certainly became a librettist because I was so sick of all the torture porn mm -hmm. um, of new opera. And I think I, I did a count last week and actually even in the comedies of the 30 most performed operas, um, I think it's something like 50 of them the comedies involve rape or the threat of rape. Um, fun times. And like the female, like two of the female characters die in the comedies. And then in the tragedies of the 30 most performed, 
uh, I think one woman survives. Um, and so we were really like attached to joy, the, the joy, joy. <laughs> and like one of the things that is beautiful about Chloe's work as the director is that she really zooms in on those moments and gives them the love and attention they need to really shine. So, sorry, we're like also like just having a massive just love fan. in ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the Annunciation is sort of the point of this show. Uh, but then there's also this very famous moment in, I guess, the liturgy, which is the Magnificat. Uh, is that is my understanding that's where the story ends here for this opera? Yeah. Well, because if you focus on Mary's choice, right, then, you know, that that's where the story is. It's not in the when you get to the ascent, the story's over, as it were. I mean, obviously, we know it's not over. But um, but yeah, that's actually we we debated, didn't we? I mm. think about whether to include a full Magnificat mm-hmm. in the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether to give it away or not. I feel like no, should. people can see it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but we 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 approach the Magnificat, yeah. shall we say? We, yeah, yeah. I think you know. I have never. I'm an ardent feminist and was like vaguely Christian, which I think I've already said growing up. Um, but I had never sat on the idea of Mary's choice as one of great courage and sacrifice and I think um I think what the show does is is just like point the telescope to that moment in this much larger Christian tradition and um and really get to sit with you know it it feels like from this vantage point the Annunciation is assumed like we know how the story goes and so in feeling like it's inevitable we remove the magnitude of that yes and I think what this story does is examine the magnitude of that yes yeah why do 489 women up until Mary say no like what what are we I mean is this is this set in modern times are we dealing with like trying to feed a baby and trying to go to work or is this set back in biblical times um Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> um, in the sense that, uh, you know, if you kind of look at it from that theological perspective, like if you, within the terms of the universe we've created, which is a theological world, if you will, then the Messiah has never come. So we're in the universe of Pharisees, which was kind of, I think, crappy for lots of people, right? So the idea behind behind the world that we're living in is... A, a rather intense and futuristic theocracy, which is very rule-bound and utilitarian um, and is all letter and no spirit. Um, it is a dehumanized theocracy. Um, yeah. It's rough because our current moment ain't so great. <laughs> it's not like as in, in stark contrast to how the world <laughs> did turn out. Um, <laughs> Thank God for that Messiah, you know, um, but however, he really fixed everything. <laughs> I don't know how, but maybe you don't, maybe you want to say that, maybe you do. But um, yeah, I've been thinking of, in terms of like, what can the performers play, thinking of it as an alternate universe. It's modern day, but if all of history had gone differently, because there's no Jesus, there's no Christianity, there's no colonialism, because yeah. of that, right? Like yeah, everything, would, a lot out. of things would have been different. A lot of things are different. but not great well we're also in this moment where we are thinking a lot about um the sacrifice of motherhood and uh how do we you know continue with our um goals for equality and and equity when um women now might be forced to give birth to a baby that uh maybe not be welcome at that point in the lives. And it's not the man's responsibility to, you know, uh, whatever, pay for that uh, and also make that sacrifice. You know, his his contribution finished a long time ago, you know. Um, <laughs> so here we are. We're at this topic. We're, we're doing this opera that is at this very tricky cultural moment when um, we're about to see rights taken away from many women, we're still dealing with a pandemic. Um, we are apparently in the post Me Too moment. Who knows if we really are, you know? Um, 
what has it been like to be, you know, women telling these stories and trying to now tell the story to an operatic audience, which have been considered uh, traditionally more conservative, those people who support the opera? You know, so, I mean, look, we could do a whole hour just on this. Um, but the first thing that comes to mind, this is where our fight goes. That's true. <laughs> um, there's, uh, so it was, so you're speaking to two women who almost died giving birth. Um, I had an incredibly rough labor where I absolutely thought that I was going to die. And um, and I almost died two weeks after giving birth as a result of complications from giving birth. Um, um, I should say that I also handed in the opera um, at, essentially at the same time that I came out of hospital. Hmm. Um, so the genus of the opera and the genus um, of my own baby were exactly aligned along with, you know, along with all of those issues. Um, I think for me, I, for me personally, I think that the, the nexus of these questions, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted Chloe to direct the show was because she had been very, um, actually forthcoming and had written in trade publications and in other mediums about what it meant for her to become a mother professionally. Um, that was something that I had not, I was grappling with internally, but I was not open about my pregnancy. Um, I was like, hey, I have a baby um, about nine months after. Um, so there are a lot of things in the show that are about, um, are about the choice to become a mother, about the cost of becoming a mother. I think you know, it was interesting, Damien and I work, the composer of the opera, Damien Jeter and I work on, um, I've just worked on another show together and our regular collaborators. And he said, Lila, like, why should I, why am I the right person to write this piece? You know, should it be a woman? And I was like, Damien, 100% of the population is affected by motherhood. <laughs> the idea that this is a special interest issue is so, is so disingenuous. You know, everyone, everyone is affected by this issue. And I think because everyone is affected, um, it's like a building that you walk past every day. You don't see it. And for me, um, for me, the difficulties of this moment around choice are also related to the value that we place on, on the raising of a child. Like, are we, are we giving people the resources to raise these children that we are asking them to bring in the world? Are we, are we respecting mothers and what the cost of that is? And, and we don't really talk about that. You know, it's that thing in America of, we expect you to work like you don't have children and mother like you don't work. Um, and all of those things I think I was thinking about when I was building this utilitarian world and, and were the questions that Mary asks, asks the angel to reveal in our telling. Um, and also that, uh, that Anne talks about, you know, for me, I thought when I started writing this piece that that I would most identify with Mary and her questions and and there there are a lot of the questions that I had in the questions that Mary asks but I also think that the perspective that Anne has which is about actually I I did have mixed feelings about this even though I wanted you I I did I didn't understand that a part of me would die all of these things, I think, because motherhood is in plain sight for everyone, and we think we know our mothers. I'm sorry, who is um, Anne in this story? Anne is Anne is the Saint Anne is the mother of Mary. Oh, okay. Um, who is also a principal character? Um, Played by Alison uh, Cambridge. Yes, yeah. exactly. Luxury casting to yes. the max, um, and she's doing a beautiful job. But the the aria that Anne sings to Mary, I think, has been really meaningful for both of us, and I think has actually been. The, the part of the show that people seeing excerpts of it or who are approaching it for the first time have been surprised by their own responses to it. I don't know if you want to pick up on that. Quote. Yeah, to me, the, the Anne Aria is the heartbeat of the piece. And the context of that is Mary asks her mom, did, did you, you want, want me? me? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's going to make me weepy to talk about. Um, and like, literally. <laughs> um, and Anne tries to explain that impossible tries to answer that impossible question and um in that aria I think you really beautifully show 
all of the very real sacrifice that is motherhood and also all of the, I'm sorry, I'm so pathetic. (laughs) And also all of the incredible beauty and joy. And it is both. it is both, uh, the, that aria ends with one of my favorite lines of the pieces, um, and looks at her daughter and says, a beautiful, terrible change you've made to me. And it, it, it's not one, it's not the other, it is both together. Um, it is this life shattering, hard, wonderful thing that has to be a choice because it is. But it's a comedy, everybody. <laughs> yeah, but it really is. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean that's what's funny about it. And I I mean, God, thank God. I mean, certainly if I didn't mother with human, I'd be completely bothered. Um, <laughs> like, but but it, it's actually really important that that we do have the comedy that the angels are the light relief because you need it. Um, because no one can sit in that intense place, you know, even only for like less than an hour. You know, you need, yeah. You, need and, you know, shape. I would say that while it's definitely comedic and there are scenes that are like literally slapstick, stupid, funny. There's, there's a giant slingshot. There's a giant slingshot. <laughs> I've taken to using the term, we sling, he's been slingshot. That's the part, that's the past tense. Oh, sorry, sorry, that was really loud. I apologize. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think that perhaps the more apt term, the, like the comedic is yes, but it's joyful. It's joyful. And so that means... Well, it's it's life affirming, right? Yeah. 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 So it is laugh out loud funny. There is dancing about wombs at a certain point. There <laughs> Sounds is like my crazy ass girlfriend all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. There's you a know, doo-wop angel chorus. Like, there's a doo-wop angel chorus. Yeah. Those moments do exist. Um, but yes, then as we describe the other moments, perhaps the bigger framework is is life affirming and joyful. And Well, I just want to, yeah. be, before we talk about your incredible cast, I still want to ask this question. I mean, I didn't ask it so well. So like, Lila, you said you turned in your libretto um, after after having given birth and mm-hmm. you guys are in the rehearsal room when this um, Supreme Court decision comes down. Um, I know you have an incredible mother who is uh, directing the orchestra. Um, and I don't know how well you know your your cast, but you know, how do you hold such strong, passionate, opinions when you don't really know who's in the room with you, you know, and how divisive this issue could be. And, you know, you're asking your artists to be vulnerable and to be truthful to this material, but you really don't know what, you know, what what's on their mind and how they feel about these subjects. That's a great question. Um, and I was very conscious of that. Um, and I think it's very easy you know, you're talking about the opera going public. Um, and I'm going to tap out and let Chloe finish this because she was actually running the room. I was just there. Um, but I think, you know, we make assumptions necessary sometimes about the, the beliefs of the opera going public. Um, and for me, it was really important that I not make assumptions about the artists. We tend to assume the artists will be liberal and that isn't always the case. Um, and in some ways I felt like the discipline of the moment for me on the day was to not make that assumption. And in some ways to articulate really clearly to the cast, um, which we did, um, that this piece was about, well, you said it was both that for you, your understanding um, of this piece and of motherhood, or but before you became a mother, I'm sorry, you said to me earlier that your understanding of motherhood was political. Yeah, I, this is something that was articulated back to me by a friend. I was talking about how I felt about motherhood and um, you know, before and after. And she was saying, it's interesting because it seems like before you became a mother, motherhood was political for you. And after you became a mother, motherhood was spiritual for you. And I think that's very true. One does not negate the other. Both of those things are true. And I think that perhaps you resonate with that statement. Yeah, and I think on that day, what I was thinking about was, here is the culture telling us that motherhood is political. And I still claim the validity 
of my lived experience, which is spiritual, and that this piece claims and holds to intention both of those things. And that I kind of invited the audience, the artists, as they were managing their own feelings on that day, to focus on what felt authentic to them in the piece, which is more the spiritual and the emotional. And for me, my intention in writing this piece is not that this be, this is not a row opera. It's an opera that existed in a time that this decision made, made it cast a particular light on it. I would be very sad. I try and write opera with two to 300 years in mind, not two to three years. Um, and so I would be sad if, if people thought this was that, that it's not, I don't believe in instant opera. I believe that opera is a digested art form and that actually my job is to hold space for people to feel because for me, what is happening in present day in North America is that people have already decided and the job of art is the creation of empathy. And part of the speech that I gave to our artists that day was that it was their job to create empathy. It was not their job to tell the audience what to think, but to help the audience attached to a human story. Because it's very hard um, to, it's very hard to enact violence on a person that you see as fully human. Can I ask, is this um, world premiere a commission from Glimmerglass? Yes, it is. So I guess we should just take a moment to big up uh, Francesca. I'm not, I don't know Francesca Zambello, but you know, to put this team together, to put one of the foremost American composers who happens to be black, to choose a, a leading conductor who happens to be a woman and who happens to be a mother who gives birth off stage and comes back on to conduct the rest of the opera. <laughs> Which also has a political ramification, I will say. We didn't, you know, we're all mothers, but we actually all have very different perspectives on motherhood and work. And that was also something that came out in the room, which was really valuable. It wasn't like we were all sitting together nursing our babies singing Kumbaya. <laughs> you know, we all, <laughs> we all, we all, really honored each other's perspectives and got on really well but like it was it was rigorous in the room yeah there were different perspectives that we had on the issues well, and that was you know this wonderful. is I, i'm i'm now we're in overtime but um this is a topic we bring up a lot on opera box score and i'm so sad that my colleague ashley isn't here because she asked these questions much better than i do but i guess this question is more for chloe since you're uh in the room all the time um you don't have to name names. You don't have to name cause, but if are there companies that are easier to work with because maybe there are women in leadership who understand, oh, we need to like have like some daycare on site or we need to get some young artists on this baby, you know? And are there companies that like are really bad with understanding the challenges of being a mother and working in this field? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a huge problem. Um, it's a huge problem that has, it, that's also like not opera or theater's job to fix, right? Like the, the societal problems are, are so big that we cannot solely ask the opera industry to like do what social security in the United States of America is not, right? Amen. Um, <laughs> however, uh, it has been so joyful working with Lila and Lydia in particular, um, and knowing that anytime we have emergency phone calls about, you know, whatever the, am I allowed to cuss? I just cuss all the time. Whenever we're having emergency phone calls, there's a baby crying. Yeah. <laughs> there's just like always a baby crying in everyone's <laughs> background. And we get that that doesn't mean we aren't excellent at our jobs. You know, if I have scheduled childcare, then I'll be alone and quiet. And when things pop up and you need to talk to me right now, that will not be true. And I think that the big difference in this specific team that I would feel more vulnerable about in other teams is that that is just 100% understood. Like I am excellent at my job as is Lydia, as is Lila. If you're calling me on an off hour, there might be a toddler there mm -hmm. and I'm still excellent at my job. Um, and I think you know, the other thing that I will just always say, because I think it's not fair not to, um, is that what I'm currently doing is not financially sustainable. <laughs> um, I, I am here, my mother has been here the whole time. 
providing free childcare for me, which um, is a privilege that not everybody can afford to do. Um, and or they may Josh not have that resource, you know. So right, and Josh had to turn down conducting work so he could travel with me all summer to these different premieres and look after our. And again, like really a strain. And it's it not is possible for everyone. And it's not possible for everyone. And it is a gamble that I'm going to level up and yep. that's going to pay off. Yep. Um, but I'm very aware that not everybody can make that gamble currently. And so the industry does need to think about how are we, again, not providing the social safety net that our country isn't. That's unreasonable. Um, but, <laughs> but how are we supporting? Yeah. And that? if you think about the gender pay gap, then it's like, okay, well, if you're 15%, 20%, depending on the intersectionality of your gender, um, underpaid, and then on average, a woman earns 13% less per child. So you're looking at at least a 30% cut to your pay, and then you're trying to pay for childcare as well. These are, these are realities that are going to the economics shut women out of the industry. And I think we are every single woman with a child on this team has struggled and tried to figure this out differently. And it has been, for me anyway, really, um, all, for all of the reasons that you just said, Chloe, like it has been wonderful to be like, my son needs to nurse. So he's just gonna nurse in the rehearsal room because I have to be here and that not be an issue. And that has been wonderful. And so yes to more of that. But, but actually the dollars and cents of it is the thing that is actually gonna change gender equity in opera. And I think, I know you said we're at time, but I'm just gonna <laughs> keep going a little bit. <laughs> I think that um, it applies to mothers and it matters for mothers, but it also applies to anyone who is a human in this field, right? Like what it is asking for at the end of the day is malleability to have time and space and financial freedom when your human needs come at the same time as your professional needs and um you know this kind of show must go on mentality that's like you always have to be available we can't know that you have a child you just have to be also applies to people with disabilities and people who are sick and people who, who are caring responsibilities yeah. yeah so you know it again everything is intersectional and, and this this one is intersectional as well. And when we're thinking about diversity in storytelling, that is another way we need those voices. We want those voices. I'm caring for a parent. I'm caring for a child. I have to have more time off because my body works differently. Like all, all of these issues are linked. How um, terrible to shut out the stories of the people who are giving so generously of themselves in yeah. their lives. Well, we ended up making this interview a lot about motherhood, and rightfully so. Uh, it's an opera about motherhood. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about this cast, which is almost predominant. I mean, it's predominantly people of color, which to me is very exciting. It's another thing we care a lot about here. Um, but mm -hmm. that, I mean, you had nothing to do with that. That was that was Glimmerglass's choice, correct? Or did you guys? No, we did. That okay. was actually, uh, that was Damien and I discussed that with Glimmerglass. Oh, like, wow. Well, thank you very much yeah. for that because <laughs> it's so nice to like click on marketing materials and or open up marketing materials and like this is it just feels organic. It doesn't feel like oh we're gonna try to wedge a black person into this show. <laughs> like this show has got Allison Cambridge and Jasmine Habersham, um, Helen Jibing Huang. Uh, it's it's a a, a pretty uh, diverse cast in general. And then you have Lydia Yankovskaya conducting. Um, so it feels like very, um, you know, it's it's checking off a lot of boxes. And I know that's not always the intention, like when one is casting or whatever, but when it happens, it feels like, oh, thank you. Thank you for that. I think you it very much felt like they picked the best people in the job for the job and the best people for the job happen to be a really diverse group of people. And that is also joyful. Yeah. And should be normal. <laughs> it was such a such a joy joyful room I just can't I mean people will come and see how incredibly talented this team is um they're so good they're so and <laughs> um yeah how... I just love the young artists so much they're so, they're so good um and and indeed they are um we just have an incredibly diverse group of people on stage and behind the table 
Um, they asked really good questions and they had really interesting perspectives yeah. that Chloe's directorial style really makes possible, makes people feel safe enough to ask questions and challenge. And that was really wonderful. Also as a writer, we try. Well, Holy Ground runs as a double bill with Jerry Dye and Kamala Sankram's um, Taking Up Serpents through August 20th at Glimmerglass Festival. Chloe Treat and Lila Palmer, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score. Thank, Thank you, you for, for having us. Boy, if we ever needed Ashley on an interview, <laughs> that, was the, that was the one. But I tried to do my best uh, compassion and empathy that Ashley always demonstrates, especially when it comes to the women's. Uh, because I'm, I mean, being a gay man is the opposite of being a woman. Some people think it's the same, but it's really, they're very different. So, and I just demonstrated that with this interview. But hopefully I, <laughs> I, I served uh, Chloe and Lila well. I really enjoyed talking to them. And yeah, the uh, double bill, which includes Holy Ground, runs through August, I want to say August 20th uh, at Glimmerglass Festival. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Angela Gheorghiu is not a fan of George Enescu's Romanian Rhapsody. And if you dare to program it in a concert at the foot of the Eiffel Tower, according to the star Romanian Soprano, you are a coward. Popular music in Paris, OMG! Has your musical culture here stopped? Sin. We have great Romanian composers, never forget whom the international public does not know, and I have sung and performed many of them all over the planet. But you did not study in Romania, and be careful. You have big gaps in this subject, said Gheorghiu on Facebook. In a follow-up, Gheorghiu bashed conductor Christian Masaralu for allegedly ghosting her for the same concert, as well as the Romanian classical music establishment for a general lack of support throughout her 30-plus year career. I owe nothing to Romania. I have never been supported by this state or its institutions in my career. On the contrary, I have supported Romanian musicians and colleagues, inviting them to my concerts and shows throughout my career. I have dedicated my whole life to music, and in particular to Romanian music. In fact, I do not owe anyone an explanation. On the contrary, I am owed explanations by many. But I thought that at least once <laughs> things should be stated clearly. Well, that certainly clears up nothing. <laughs> Luciano Pavarotti will be posthumously honored with a 2730th star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The Italian tenor joins a short list of opera singers represented on the walk, which include Maria Callas, Enrico Caruso, Renata Tebaldi, and Andrea Bocelli. Uh, wait, I thought we were talking about opera singers. Bird. The Théâtre Royal de Liège is currently out of commission due to a recent backstage fire. Though the fire was contained before it spread to the auditorium, General Director Stefano Pace explained, The cleaning is currently in progress. It is a complex task, in particular because of the volume of the spaces to be treated. The Royal Theatre's upcoming international competition for opera conductors has been moved to the Salle Philharmonique. Tapestry Opera's upcoming premiere of Gould's Wall promises not to remain earthbound, as soprano Lauren Pearl will be scaling the titular 60-foot brick wall. Composer Brian Current was inspired by the facade of the Glenn Gould School in Toronto and worked with librettist Liza Balkin to tell what she calls the story of a young artist, a woman, climbing the wall as a journey toward finding her own voice, the readiness to fly and soar. No word yet if the wall will be repurposed for a future opera about the Trump presidency. Friend of the show, Opera Philadelphia, is adding its first annual Opera on Film series to its 2022 O Festival, which will show 30 cinematic operas at the Philadelphia Film Center. Opera on Film will consist not only of classic opera films, like the Joseph Losey Don Giovanni, but also recent productions by Opera Philadelphia, as well as 20 feature-length and short-form films drawn from more than 800 submissions, including Corsair by Chicago Fringe Opera. Hometown team, baby. In trade news, Christian Firmbach has been tapped as the new intendant for the Badisches Staatstheater Karlsruhe starting in the 2024 season. Victorian Opera has appointed Stuart Maunder as artistic director starting in fall of 2023. And Nazional Theater Mannheim has appointed Roberto Rizzi Brignoli as music director. The rule of three, only on the OBS. 
On the disabled list, Greek National Opera was forced to cancel a performance of Tosca due to a medical emergency involving Christina Opolais. The company made, quote, every effort to find a replacement soprano, but was not successful. Guess no one called Angela. Exit stage right. Musicologist Richard Taruskin died last month from cancer at age 77. Taruskin was primarily known for his monumental six-volume Oxford History of Western Music, which traced the art form's history from the medieval era to the late 20th century, or as NPR put it, a writer who made you care about 1,000 years of music. And he famously cared most about Russian and Soviet music, though he was no fan of Schoenberg or Prokofiev. And on this day, August 1st, 1740 saw the first performance of Thomas Arne's Mask Alfred, which features that well-known chestnut, Rule Britannia. American lawyer Francis Scott Key was born on this day in 1779. He wrote, of course, the poem The Star-Spangled Banner, which later became our country's national anthem. In 1831, Italian baritone and singing teacher Antonio Cotogni was born in Rome. He studied with Giochino Rossini and taught pupils including Giuseppe De Luca, John Doreschi, and Giacomo Lauri Volpi. Lily Chukasian, the American mezzo-soprano, was born on this day in 1917 in Chicago, as well as German-based baritone Theo Adam in Dresden in 1926. Finally, 1931 saw the birth of Compromario tenor Nico Castell in Lisbon. Castell was a well-known language and diction coach, as well as a prolific translator of libretti and writer of books on singing diction. Best known for his nearly 800 performances at the Metropolitan Opera, where he also served as staff diction coach for three decades. And that's your two-minute drill. That was the birthday girl Lily Chukasian singing Weiche Wotan in a performance of Rheingold from Bayreuth in 1965 that was conducted by Karl Böhm. Interesting fun fact, the Wotan in that performance was the birthday boy Theo Adam himself, Ooh. but we did not get to him in the clip. Hmm. Happy birthday, besties. Hmm. <laughs> remember, I don't know if you guys are, I mean, I guess I'm talking to Matt now, if you are uh, old enough to remember when people would talk about the, the Nico Castells. Oh, do you have the Castell of this of this? Or opera? if you were really familiar, do you have the Nico of that? Yes, <laughs> exactly. So Weston, uh, before the internet and where you could you could find the pronunciation of anything just by clicking on it, uh, we had to have these thick, thick volumes of opera. They're like yeah. an inch and a half yeah. thick. Opera libretti. Like dic dictionaries. With underlay. Is this the same thing as a, as a I think it's called a VHS? <laughs> They're very similar, but not quite. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they came with VHSs, or they might have. <laughs> so this is basically just the libretto of the opera, and underneath each line was Nico Castell's phoneticization of those words. But they were especially helpful for an opera that had like um, Cosi Fantute that has like a million idioms and like references in it because he'll be like, this is what the hell everyone is talking about. <laughs> Even though you know what the words are, yeah. you do not know what they're saying. Yeah, yeah it's all couched in flower metaphors usually. <laughs> Uh, speaking of not knowing what you're saying because of translation <laughs> problems, <laughs> can anyone help me with uh, Georgiou right now? Because I, I, I felt like the always sunny meme of Charlie Day and the red string trying to figure out what she was <laughs> talking about. I read the entire thing uh, on Facebook, the entire post, and I, 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 I read the it's paragraphs of this. If you go look on her official yeah. Facebook page. Uh, and it, granted, we were going through Google Translate, which is always going to be a little bit of a problem. But I was more lost than I was at the very beginning. Matt, what yeah, is your best yeah, guess? There is, as the kids say, a lot to unpack here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just want to add a proviso in front of this that 
we don't actually know for sure that any of what we're trying to speculate on, like, reading between these tea leaves is correct, but it seems like... Angela York, you got into this big, got into a big internet feud because she hates the music of Georgianescu and thinks that there are better Romanian composers who don't get enough attention. Um, and at the same time, she was maybe disinvited, maybe never contracted to sing at this concert in Paris uh, right. for the Bastille Day concert. She had to hear about it from the secretary, and I believe, she is what wasn't she said. even told directly. Um, so so tragic. And it seems like for Angela, this is a pattern of disrespect that has gone back since her debut in Romania in 1990, when she didn't get a contract at the Romanian National Opera. Which, to be fair, may have had something to do with the fact that the Ceausescu regime was deposed that very same year, and there might have been like a wee bit of chaos going on uh, outside of the international debut of um, one Romanian soprano, possibly. Just gonna hazard a guess. Um, so she really like left no holds barred. Every every person she thinks who has she has supported and hasn't been given that kind of same support back. Like there's a list of names of, of Romanians whose careers she's lifted up and never felt like that was reciprocated by the Romanian press and the classical music industry in the country. I certainly cannot speak to how accurate those feelings of hers are. Um, I can say that this is a singer who does have a bit of a reputation for being maybe a little bit of a fabulist. Um, she's known to, uh, <laughs> come up with some stories that paint her in in a in the best possible light and uh may or may not be attached to reality yeah i, I it's it's hard to say what exactly is going on here and uh angela Giorgio, if you're listening please come on our show so you can explain exactly what you mean to say we promise we won't judge we just want to know what you're talking about uh i it's it, it seems like a very very specific very personal uh th- problem she's having and my heart goes out to her but i don't know what's going on and we can't help you there was a um show on the Dallas Opera Network where Emmanuel Villeneuve used to interview people like the maestros. I forget. I mean, we were Viom. on session. Yeah, Viome. Uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, he interviewed Angela Gheorghiu one time and she was actually very charming. I was actually, I listened to the whole he, thing. It's like, he conducts a bunch of, he's conducted a bunch of her recent recordings. I think that they're, they're, um, studio BFFs. Maybe mm. we should ask, maybe we should ask him what this yeah. is all about. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he'll yeah. return our calls. <laughs> I was like, I want to see what her deal is with uh, Inescu because I, I I like him a lot. I think he's I think he's good. I don't. It's I don't too know popular. For, it's West, just too West too popular. She yeah. is never going to come on the show now. Now that you said something <laughs> nice about Inescu, what are you thinking? So well, I, just... Inescu can't be that popular because he doesn't have a Hollywood uh, star, unlike Luciano Pavarotti. And may I say, I was kind of shocked that Pavarotti didn't have a star yet. Like I know I, I... that was so weird. Because uh, we were looking, we Googled before the show, like what opera singers were on, um, already had stars. And it's a bunch of opera stars from the 30s who were also in films, um, uh, including my BFF, um, uh, Fyodor Shaliapin. Um, Amelita Gali Kuchi, Hive Rise Up. <laughs> like, there are some fairly obscure ones, but I'm like, I. I would I would bet I would bet money right now. I don't know if anyone can disprove this, but I would bet money that of any opera singer, I think Pavarotti's voice has appeared in more films than any other opera singer in the history of the medium. And I I would be willing to bet as much money as I have in my pocket right now on that, which is not very much. I think the importance of the Hollywood star has truly diminished since you know the heyday of whatever when people used to really care about that when people that, used to walk in los angeles that <laughs> forgotten that said, time that said pavarotti was in the prime of his career during that time so right the fact that something like uh andrew bocelli has one instead of pavarotti is that baffles me but just let's let's run down the list because it's not that many so it's licia albanese andrew bocelli maria callas who Enrico caruso Enrico Caruso, Fedor Chaliapin, Richard Crooks, I don't know about that one, Placido Domingo, maybe take it back, mm. Geraldine Farrar, Kristen <laughs> Flockstad, Amelita Galacucci, Benamino Gigli, Dorothy Kirsten, Mario Lanza, Lottie Lehman, Lords Melchior, James Melton, hmm? was he in movies or something? Robert Merrill, Grace Moore, I could see that, Jan Pierce, 
Ezio Pinza, Lily Ponce, Ernestine Schumann Hike, I stand. Beverly Sills, Eleanor Staber, we stand. Renata Tibaldi, go Renata 100. Is Ren- hashtag Renata 100. <laughs> hashtag, yeah. Hashtag yeah. Renata 100. Uh, Bl- Blanche Thiebaum, hmm? John Charles Thomas. She was in movies. Okay. Like, I looked that one up because I was like, yeah. how did they get Blanche Thiebaum on their list? <laughs> uh, Deep cut. Lawrence Tibbet and Helen Traubel. There it is. And now, yeah. Luciana Pavarotti. It's it's just so weird to me that he it took him so long. I will say um, one secret that they don't want you to know about the Hollywood Star Walk is that you do have to pay for the star yourself. So I assume that some member of the Pavarotti family coughed up some money for it. It's okay. But, They've got uh, plenty of money in the Pavarotti trust. I think now. there's probably a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, that guy uh, Freddie Tommaso is you know. Pipe, yeah, not if Freddie Tommaso has he's, anything he's, to say about it. He's siphoning off some of that money that's going to the Pavarotti estate. Those fractions his... of pennies that Spotify <laughs> has been feeding into the Pavarotti bank accounts <laughs> for years. The number one Nessun Dorma. And now some upstart Brit. Uh, oh, that's that's delightful. Yeah, I think it's uh, very strange to me. Uh, speaking of, let's have been kind of a weird week. I think. Um, how do you how do you not find a Tosca ready to go in all of Greece, presumably after Christina Opolis, um bows out? Like that that seems very strange to me that there wasn't anyone on hand who could do a Tosca. Well, that they didn't have notice. that they didn't have a understudy. Is one thing, but right, uh, yeah, there I mean, is they're... no understudy for Christina Opolice. <laughs> <laughs> too too deep of a cut. Yeah. <laughs> I I just I feel like I'm, I mean I don't know what their situation is. I I don't know what uh, I don't know what I happened. Wondered, I like, hope them... they didn't sell enough tickets or something. It's like yeah, yeah, maybe we're yeah, like, yeah whatever. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully the medical emergency involving uh, Christina is uh, not too serious i hope that uh, she's fine i also um, want to mention really quick uh taruskin's um um death is pretty significant because uh if you've been in a music building on the collegiate level you've seen the oxford history of western music lying around somewhere i can almost guarantee you, you haven't read it but someone had to write it and that is an impressive feat by uh any means this is a very important book in academia um, and you don't get to be uh, that important without having controversial uh, music takes, uh, which is why uh, I think we would all write a great book of our own Oxford history of music because um, <laughs> we're we're full of them uh, 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 over here at OBS. I think it's fascinating that he specialized in Soviet repertoire and uh, was not a fan of Prokofiev. I would love to actually crack open uh, my dusty copy of Oxford History of Western Music and see what that's about. We'll await your update with bated breath. (laughs) All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. That's how we end every single show come hell or high water, and it's neither at the moment, which is good. Uh, Oliver Camacho, what do you have for us? Well, my good call I have, too, is that I'm not going to be here next week, so have a good show. Is that Uh, a good call or a bad (laughs) call? That's a good call for me. Uh, I will be um, enjoying... The uh, what you call it festival, the Santa Fe Opera Festival. So I look, I look forward. To <laughs> Our seeing... friends of the you... show, they yeah. are very generous friends at Santa Fe. You can't we buy love publicity them. We like would never that. forget the name. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm very, uh, very excited to see M Butterfly with friend of the show uh, Kangman Justin Kim, mm. uh, and all other friends and future friends of the show. I'm going to hopefully come back with some nice interview content. But I wanted to shout out to uh, another friend of the show, Janai Brugger, uh, who made her, s- oh, she didn't make her CSA debut. She made her CSA debut uh, singing Beethoven 9 in replacement of Lizette Oropesa in the fall. Uh, mm-hmm. But she made her Ravinia, she made her debut with the uh, Ravinia version of CSO singing uh, Leonard Bernstein's Kaddish Symphony. Um, and it was breathtaking it was stunning mm-hmm. like it was just tone for days and everybody who was in the chorus who were all very judgmental singers <laughs> they were all like she you don't say <laughs> she sang that thing it was so delicious so if you're listening mm-hmm. janai um uh, good job 
Matt Cummings. My good call is that I stand with Angela Giorgio against the forces of Romanian <laughs> classical music who are attempting to silence her. <laughs> that is it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Woodell, who can be found at normwoodell.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. On Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. Couldn't be easier. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. Hey, that's me! For our guests, Lila Palmer and Chloe Treat, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you try to figure out what the heck Angela Giorgio is talking about. We're back with an all-new show next week while Oliver goes on vacation to, uh... <laughs> Some city, Some city yeah, New man. Mexico, I forget what it's called. <laughs> Plus, you get more hot takes and more posthumous Hollywood stars. Join us.